Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good? Good. Welcome to those of us joining us online as well. Like Vicki said, my name's Andrew. If we haven't got a chance to connect yet, or if you're visiting, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, I'm going to be continuing in a series we have been doing for really, it's been a few months now, it seems like, uh, called The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the last book of the Bible known as, as Revelation. And today we're, gonna, we're getting towards the end, and we're looking at the fifth and final act of this play or this drama that Jesus is essentially putting on for John, his disciple on the island of Patmos. And, and, and he, all throughout Revelation, we've been talking about how this, is, this type of literature, this type of book is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is full of imagery, but that doesn't mean it's fiction. It doesn't mean it's fiction. It doesn't make it untrue. It simply means that it's meant to be read symbolically. All throughout this book so far, we've seen the, the symbolism. We've talked about the symbolism, and that's going to continue in, in this fifth and final act. And, and, we, and why is Jesus using all of this symbolism and all of this imagery? Well, really for two reasons, for two reasons. And we've talked about this all throughout the series. One is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present which is a, a, a fancy way of meaning to help us understand and see what God is doing right now in our lives and in the world, really, what he's really doing as he pulls back the curtain. And the second reason is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future, meaning it's meant to help us understand that what God is doing right now in our present moment, we won't totally understand until the future, but it, it's impacting our future. Now, up to this point in Revelation, most of what we've talked about is the first one of those reasons, of how it impacts our present moment and our present reality. But in this fifth and final act, we're gonna see the focus is more on the future and give us encouragement for the future. So let me pray, and then we'll look at this next section that we're gonna be looking at today. So Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you for each person here and those of us watching, those are watching online. And as we just dive into this fifth, and final act, really, of revelation, to give us eyes to just see, to see what has been unseen to us so far. Help us to understand and have a, a good perspective of what is going on in this passage and what you're doing in our lives today, Jesus. Pray that in your name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at two larger chunks today. Uh, the second half of chapter 19 and most of 20 won't cover all of it in total detail, but kind of give a, a good overview of it. Uh, but as we look at Revelation 19, starting off in verse 11, I want you to notice and look for the word open. The word open is gonna appear right at the very beginning. And that, that's important because all along that has been the indication word that John has used to indicate that we're, we're moving into a, a new act in this drama, in this play that's being performed. So it's like the curtain is being pulled back at that point. And then I want you to notice Jesus. I want you to notice Jesus right at the very beginning, right as the curtain is pulled back. And what do you notice about Jesus? What do you, what's, he, what's he dressed in? What's he doing? And notice that he's gonna look a lot different and be described a lot differently than he has 
so far in this, in this drama or this place. So again, starting off in Revelation 19, verse 11, it says this. And then I saw a heaven, or I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Well, that is quite, quite an interesting image, right? That to say the least, quite gory. Um, but this fifth and final act here starts with Jesus looking quite different than we've ever seen him in the past. In the past so far in, in Revelation, we've seen him dressed as an older white-haired high priest in act one. We've seen him dressed as the slain baby lamb in act two. We've seen him as a, a baby boy on Christmas in act three. But here, Jesus is dressed very differently. And at first glance, I think to myself, this is my kind of Jesus. Like, shh, this is Terminator Jesus, right? Like, I told you I'd be back, Jesus, right? I mean, this is like Mel Gibson's Braveheart Jesus, like riding on a horse, like war paint, like blood. This is, this at first looks like, like that, but is that really who we see here? Is that really who Jesus is here? The curtain is pulled back and Jesus is immediately on the stage on this white war horse and he's, he's dressed as a, a divine warrior king, eyes blazing with fire many crowns on his head. Now, if one crown wasn't enough, he's got many crowns on his head, indicating he's definitely the king of kings. Right? And his, his clothes are dipped and stained in blood, and he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now, at first glance, again, this seems at first like action hero Jesus, like finally no more wimpy baby Jesus or little slain lamb Jesus or old man, white hair Jesus. This is like kick butt Jesus, right? But he's, and he's got his whole army, this whole army of heaven riding on white horses following him. But things are not quite as they might seem. 
there's more going on here with Jesus than we first might notice. Everything seems as if this final epic battle scene of war, the war to end all wars, is about to happen. The beast and the, the false prophet, which are, are, we've seen them a few weeks ago. We talked about those as the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth representing dragon or devil manipulated political powers and religious powers. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If that is confusing to you, I would, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I encourage you to go back and watch or listen to some of the sermons from the last few weeks. But they have assembled in this play with the manipulated kings of the earth and their armies to the front lines for this final battle, the famous Armageddon. But what happens next when these two armies line up against each other is very unexpected. You know, if this was a, a war movie like, like Braveheart or something like that, it would be at this point, if I was watching this at home on TV where I would probably pause the movie, I'd go to the restroom, I'd get a snack, because I would want to come back and not have to in, be interrupted and watch the next hour-long battle scene, right? If you've seen movies like that, it always seems like ha at least half the movie is one big battle scene. That's what I would expect at this point in this play, but that's not what happens. In fact, in fact, the battle's not really ever even fought. Essentially, it's over before it even starts. Verse 19, we read this. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Everything's ready to go, but the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. Daryl Johnson, whose book, Discipleship on the Edge, we've referred to over the last number of weeks throughout this series, points out that there really is no battle because when Jesus shows up, the beast and the false prophet are captured and it's over. As soon as the armies have assembled, Jesus wields the only weapon that he has, which is a sword coming out of his mouth, which is symbolic of him speaking of his voice, and as soon as he speaks, it's over. Jesus' voice has the power to stop the beasts immediately. New Testament scholar Paul Barnett refers to this passage in Revelation as the complete anti-climax. It's all this buildup and buildup and buildup and buildup for chapter after chapter, for all the way up through the Revelation, all the first four acts, all this built up to this moment when the armies have assembled and it's just over. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, a couple reasons. One, it it's possible because of the, it shows the power and authority of Jesus, that nothing is a match for him. In the Gospels, when Jesus opens his mouth, the enemy can do nothing. All Jesus has to say is, get out and demons flee. Be healed and sickness vanishes. Stop and storms diminish. Jesus has so much authority and power. All he has to do is open his mouth to, to basically be the word of God, which is his name. And the battle is over. That's the first reason. The second reason it's possible is because the battle doesn't need to be fought again because the battle has already been fought and won on Good Friday on the cross. Second Col or Colossians 2, uh, 15 says, and this is talking about Jesus, 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? By the cross. In the play, Jesus is now showing up a second time. And he's coming as the divine warrior king. But not to win the battle, it's already been won. The blood on his robe is not from all the enemies he has slaughtered with the sword coming out of his mouth. It's, it's dripping in blood when the curtain is first pulled back because it's his blood. He shows up in a, with his robe, with his blood that was poured out on the cross for the sins of the world. Not only that, his army is not dressed in, in armor and protective gear. They are dressed in white, clean robes. Why? because they aren't actually going to fight in a battle. They are, they are there, they, are the, they have been purified by the blood of the warrior, of the lamb. Their robes are that of a royal priesthood, of his followers, of those who have put their faith and trust in him. Their robes are white like bridal gowns. We as Christians are Jesus sought after bride and he is our perfect groom. Jesus does not come onto the scene in this play to win the battle. He has already done that. What he has come to do now is to fully enact the reality of that victory that he won 2,000 years ago and to bring his judgment, to lock up the beast and the false prophet and throw them into this symbolic fiery lake. Now, this is, this is good news. I think this is really good news. To the people living in John's day and age, to the early church, to the early Christians who would have heard this, they would have been very encouraged by this because despite all the pressure that they were under to compromise their faith, despite all the pressure the beasts were putting on them, the political power known as Rome and the religious leaders and, and powers that had called all the people to worship the Roman emperor, these these early Christians would have been encouraged that one day, one day the true warrior king Jesus would come back again to fully claim his victory as the true king of kings and Lord of lords. And that, and that was that phrase that was written on his robe and on his thigh, it says. And how do we know that this is what John is talking about? Well, we know that this because the phrase king of kings and Lord of lords was a very well-known nickname for the Roman emperor. So what John is saying to the early church is be encouraged. What John is saying really to us is be encouraged. You know, the, the pressure to compromise, whether it was with Rome back then or the things that we are challenged to compromise with now, in the end, the faithful and true King of Kings and Lord of Lords will come again. And one day when he comes, he will claim the spoils of the war that he won 2,000 years ago, once and for all. Now, right now we are living like the early church in this overlapping time period, the time between the, the, what we call the now and the not yet of the kingdoms, right? But in this scene, when Jesus comes a second time and, and fully establishes the kingdom of God once and for all, there will be no more not yet. Armageddon doesn't really happen, at least not the way we think it's gonna happen or have been taught it would happen. Because in a sense, it's already happened on Good Friday. 
And so not only should, we, should the early Christians be encouraged by this, we should be encouraged as well. Armageddon is not something those of us who believe in Jesus need to be afraid of. And that leads to another big question in this play. And that question is, but what about the dragon? Where is he in all of this? What's happened to him? If you remember a few weeks ago, the dragon represents the devil, Satan, the one who's behind all this manipulation of the beast and behind all this evil in the world. Where is he at? Well, we meet him in chapter 20, and I wanna read that to you here. It says this, chapter 20, verses one through 15. And I saw an angel coming out down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the burning lake of sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They had been tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened. This is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I know there's a lot there. We could probably do four or five sermons just on that passage alone. But I wanna just talk about a couple things. And that's this, what happens to the dragon? What happens to the dragon? In the play, in verse 10, He's thrown into this fiery lake with the beast and the false prophet for all of eternity. But how does he get there? How he gets there is quite interesting. This passage is probably one of the most debated passages, not only in Revelation, but in all of scripture and talking about this thousand years, this thousand year millennium. In Revelation 20, verse one and two, we read this. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. 
He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we see here in this, that, that the dragon is caught, he's bound, he's chained up for a millennium. But then in Revelation 20, verse seven through eight, it says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. So is this a second battle, right? Or is this the same battle as the one before, just from a different perspective, right? Lots of questions and thoughts on that. Verse nine, it says, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of burning sulfur. Here again in this battle, whether it represents the same battle or a different battle, it ends almost the same way. As soon as they have assembled to fight and surrounded the city, fire comes down from heaven and it's over before it ever really begins. Now, like I said, this thousand year period is one of the most debated topics in all of scripture. There have been books upon books upon books written about it with various opinions and stances. People wonder, is this a literal thousand years? Is it a symbolic thousand years? Are we already living in this thousand year period or is it still yet to come? Well, if it's still yet to come, will Jesus come before it starts or after it starts? These have been lots and lots of debate about this. But all throughout Revelation, we have talked about how in this book, in apocalyptic literature, are numbers statistics or are they symbols? They're symbols, they're symbols, right? Earlier in Revelation, we met the lamb, the, the slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, seven meaning perfect or complete, meaning the slain lamb, Jesus is perfect and complete in his wisdom and in his strength as the sacrificial lamb. Later on, we, we read and we learned that the mark of the beast is 666. Six meaning uh, imperfect or incomplete because six is one less than seven. It's close to seven, but it will never be seven. It'll never get there. It's imperfect. It's incomplete. All throughout the book of Revelation, numbers have always been meant to be taken symbolically, not statistically or literally. So in my opinion, I would think it would be very unlikely that all of a sudden that would switch. And, it, this should, and, and all of a sudden that we should take this as a literal 1,000 years. I, I really think strongly that this is probably a symbolic 1,000 years, but symbolic of what? What is 1,000 symbolic of? Well, 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10, 10 to the third power, 10 times three or three times. 10 is the number of completeness, completeness. Three is also a number of completeness. So in a way, 10 times 10 times 10 or 10 to the third power means completely complete, like no doubt about it, complete, right? So meaning that this time period where Satan is bound up for a thousand years represents the complete and exact amount of time that Jesus intended it to be. Not a day early or a day late, not a second early or a second late, meaning Jesus is in total control of the devil's timetable. And again, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But, but when 
when does this symbolic thousand year millennium take place? Well, will it happen again before Jesus comes back, after he comes back? Is it happening right now? These are great questions that have been debated by many, many really smart people for years and years and years. And it's kind of led to three major viewpoints in Christian circles that are commonly known as premillennium, postmillennium, and amillennium. And premillennium means that those people who believe that mean that Jesus will come back pre or before this thousand year period. Postmillennium means that people believe Jesus will come back after or post this thousand year period. And amillennium basically means a very simplified version of this, that it's representing the time period right now between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Now, again, we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have time for that. But, um, but I do just wanna say this about those viewpoints. Um, there are lots and lots of solid, respected Christian leaders who believe all three viewpoints. Some of the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian, believed and were premillennialists. St. Augustine and John Calvin were amillennialists. And, um, the great evangelist John Edwards was a post-millennialist. So there's a lot of, lot of opinions out there and thoughts about there. And I think it, it would be dangerous to draw a really hard line and divide up as Christians over this issue because this is the only time we see it talking in scripture. It's much more of a peripheral issue, in my opinion, than a, and than a core issue. Um, but, but, but I will say this though. In scripture, we do see that Jesus is not becoming king someday. He's already king. He's already the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's ushered in his rule and his reign when he first came and in his first coming. And in doing that, he also bound up the dragon at that point too as well. When Jesus first came to earth and began his ministry, if you're familiar with the story, one of the first things he does is he goes out into the desert to be tempted by the dragon, to be tempted by the devil. And, and to do, when he goes and he goes out into the desert to be t- tempted, he comes out of the desert victorious. And he begins healing people and casting out demons and forgiving people their sins, not only proving his kingship, but also it's at this point that people begin to accuse him of working in cahoots with the devil saying, well, you can do all these miracles because you're working with the devil. And it's at that point that Jesus tells his very first parable in Mark. And he says this in Mark 3, he says this, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The language that Jesus uses here in the gospel of Mark is the same exact kind of language that John uses in Revelation and talking about tying up the strong man or tying up and binding up the dragon. When Jesus is saying in this parable, He's saying that he is able to heal the people and cast out demons and perform these miracles because he's already bound up the devil. The great Martin Luther described this by saying that Jesus has put the devil on a leash. It's a long leash, but it's a leash. He's put the devil on a chain. 
It's a long chain, but like a ferocious dog, he can bark and he can even bite if you get too close, but he can only do so much. His leash will only let him go so far. He can only do so much damage because he's been bound up and he's awaiting his final sentencing, his final judgment. And there's so much more I'd love to say about that, but for time's sake, if the worship team wants to come up and start to make their way up here, I'll end with this. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean? Whether it's a symbolic thousand year millennium happening you know, right now, if it's, if, if, if it's before, gonna happen before Jesus comes back or after he comes back, you know, we don't know exactly what it will look like when the dragon is released for a short time or when that's happened. But what we can and what we should all agree upon as Christians is that it doesn't really change the final ending. And so because it doesn't really change the final ending, it shouldn't really change our response now and how we respond now. And that means a few do's and a few don'ts. We don't have to be afraid and we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide our heads in the sand and we don't have to be afraid. Jesus, the divine warrior king, is in complete control now. And the dragon can only do so much. He is limited. He's on a leash. And we don't have to be afraid of Armageddon someday because Armageddon won't happen someday the way we think it's gonna happen someday. When Jesus shows up and he speaks, it's gonna be over. Once the city is surrounded, fire from heaven comes down and it's over. We don't have to hide away from the world until Jesus comes back a second time. Because in his first coming, he's made us into his priestly army and he has things for us to do. And what are those things? What, what are the things he has for us to do? Well, we get to share the good news through our words and through our deeds, through our actions. We get to participate with Jesus enacting his kingdom now, even if it's only partial now. He invites us to speak on his behalf, to wield the sword coming out of his mouth. He invites us to share in that through his power, through the Holy Spirit, to look for opportunities every day to pray for our sick neighbor to be healed, to love and serve our families and communities, to share our personal faith story with the people around us, to invite a friend or a neighbor to Easter service, because there are people around us that are not aware. They're not aware that they are unknowingly following the dragon. And every day is one day closer to judgment. Every day is one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And it's God's heart, it's Jesus' heart that everyone would turn to him. Everyone would turn to him and have their names written in the book of life. And that one day, that one day when Jesus does come back, he will establish a wonderful new heaven and a new earth. And what will that look like? What will that be like? Well, you have to come back next week. That's what we're talking about next week. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.